Good morning, Lindsley Avenue. Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. It's good to think there are people behind that lens I'm looking at over there. But seriously, if you're watching us live, we're thankful that you're with us virtually. And if you were watching us later on, on a delayed basis, we're glad you're watching us even then. We'd like to encourage any of you who are watching now or watching later, come on down and join us here at Lindsley Avenue. We've got a big building, and so far at least, we've got plenty of room to spread out. So come on down and, and join us here at Lindsley Avenue. What you will find is a group of people that love God, that love each other, and that love our neighbors. And if those three things sound good to you, then I think you'll find a home that you might be looking for. So please come down and join us at Lindsley Avenue. Uh, we appreciate uh, all of you here this morning. We're going to be looking in the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And what I've called here, Jesus Speaks to the Churches. Uh, the book of Revelation is often a, a book that we don't study much because once you get past these first couple of chapters, it seems pretty pretty uh, interesting, pretty confusing, pretty wild, we might even say. But in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, what you have is Jesus's, if you will, last specific messages to seven different churches. And so what would you say if you only had potentially a little while longer to be telling people things? Now, granted, the rest of the book of Revelation comes after this, but specifically, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and now to Pergamum, Jesus says, here's what you need to know is my last message to you. So I want us to look at what he says to Pergamum in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. The map, hopefully, that you see on the screen shows the locations of these seven churches that Jesus sends a message to as he's speaking to John the Apostle. John the Apostle at this time is in that bottom left corner on the island of Patmos. And Jesus says, right, and he sends these messages. Always imagine the Pony Express. A rider gets on a horse and goes around in this circle. He writes first to Ephesus, which is the first place you would find coming off of the island of Patmos. And then there's really a circle because that's the way they were laid out. He writes to Ephesus, then he has a message to Smyrna, Pergamum, we'll talk about this morning. Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. So we're up there at the top, Pergamum. Pergamum had been a capital city for over 400 years of its province in what the Romans called the province of Asia. Today, all these cities are in what we would call the country of Turkey. The capital of the Seleucid Kingdom, this is one of the four primary kingdoms after Alexander the Great's empire dissolved. Uh, from about 282 B.C. until 133 B.C. At that time, Pergamum became the capital city of the Roman province of Asia when the Romans took it over. It was built on a very tall, conical hill, and uh, from the top of which you could see the Mediterranean Sea some 15 miles away. It could never really achieve the commercial greatness of Ephesus or Smyrna, but it was the center of culture in that time that really in many ways surpassed them both. It was famous for its library, which held over 200,000 parchment scrolls, second at that time only to the fabled Library of Alexandria down in Egypt. It was also a great religious center. It had a great huge altar to Zeus that was 
built in front of the Temple of Athena. And I'm going to show you some pictures of where that was located here in a moment. This altar was burning day and night. And in the daytime, the fires and the smoke were visible from miles away. At night, when you first came to the port on the Mediterranean Sea, when you finally got to land, you could see the fires burning from the top of this large hill, small mountain, upon which Pergamum was built. Uh, all day, every day, smoke rose from sacrifices to Zeus. It was also a center for the worship to the God Asclepios, this was the God of healing, the God of medicine. Uh, and in so many ways, when people in that world, that time, had problems, if they could, they would go to a temple of Asclepios where they were told to sleep in the temple and the God would reveal in a dream how they were to be healed. So these poor people would come to the temple of Asclepios, and the biggest one was here at Pergamum. And they would sleep sometimes for days or weeks, hoping to have a dream to tell them how to be healed of their diseases. Unfortunately, a huge percentage of the diseases were related to their immoral behavior, and there was no way to cure them before the days of antibiotics. So pitiful, pitiful sights. Common swearing to affirm that you were really telling the truth in the first century was done either by Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. Remember, uh, the silversmiths were all shouting out in the book of Acts, great is Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. They're, they're, they're calling out and invoking her name upon that. By Apollo of Delphi, we have the great temple of Apollo at the Oracle of Delphi. Or by Asclepios of Pergamum. That's how revered and how important Asclepios about healing was here in Pergamum. Most common title that was given to Asclepios, the God of healing, was Asclepios Soter, Asclepios the Savior, Asclepios the Savior. Particularly appalling for Christians to hear people call Asclepios the Savior. So it's not an easy place to be a Christian. It was a great pagan religious center, and the Christians would have felt the extreme minority. All around them, people would have been calling out to Zeus with his great temple, day and night burning sacrifices, the smoke of which you would have smelled everywhere, to Zeus. These poor people calling out to Asclepios to save them, all the while Christians know the only true person to worship is Jesus as the Son of God. Here's a picture of Asclepios, I mean, uh, of uh, Pergamum today. You can see it's obviously up on a great tall hill. And in the mountains, in the very dim, dim distance, if you can possibly look, there's this faint hint of where the Mediterranean Ocean is. So if you can see the ocean, they can see you, or at least the tall hill on that. Of course, anytime you look at a picture of this ancient world where they want tourists, they make sure columns are standing. And so there's no way these columns have remained standing for 2,000 years. The tourist industry put these up. But you would have been able to be walking toward Pergamum, and as you're walking up on that hill in the background is where that great temple to Zeus was located. If you look very, if you focus very, very closely on it, you'll be able to see in the indentation of the hill is a theater. Boy, you know, we've got some pretty impressive uh, theaters and places to hear symphonies and all that kind of stuff here in Nashville. Bigger cities have even more uh, refined, beautiful places to go. What it would have been like to be in that theater on the side of the hill with that kind of view looking down at some sort of drama 
going on down on the floor below. Here is again a picture looking the other way at some of the temples. I wanted to make sure that you realize there was a city here. There were buildings here. The, this, this idea of worshiping in temples was done by real, real people. These people were, in fact, living and experiencing their lives with joy, pain, sorrow, laughter, every bit as much as you and me. Every bit as much. Another one here you can see again. Remember, those columns are put up so tourists have something to take pictures of. Here's one of the two theaters. They built these theaters such that if you were sitting in the top row, a whisper on the stage could be heard. We tested that, when, not when I was in Pergamon, but when I was in Philippi, because I stood up on the very top level of the theater and someone whispered my name and I was able to hear it. So the acoustics were just incredible. They knew how to put on a show. Here is that theater that's built into the side of the hill. Way down here toward the bottom right, you can see kind of a grass-covered stage now. But people would have filled this theater laughing and having a great time watching the drama or hearing the presentations being made down below with that kind of a view out in the distance. This picture shows the current uh, view of what the location looks like today where the Temple of Zeus was located. That giant uh, trees there in the middle of it, you can kind of see if you look the steps leading up to it, the remnants of some steps. That's where the Temple of Zeus was located. Look out in the distance. You can see the modern-day city of people living out in the distance down below from this hill. That's where day and night, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, burning sacrifices were being made to Zeus all the time. And as Christians, we think we live in an openly pagan, immoral society. It would have been very tough to be around that all the time. This is an image of what it probably looked like. I say probably because obviously it's not there anymore. But inside the center courtyard of this temple is where the altar would have been with the smoke and flames coming out. The reason it's not there now is because it resides in Germany. The helpful Europeans decided that they had a better place to put it than in Pergamon. And they disassembled it, took it to Berlin. It's in the museum there. If you ever go to Berlin and just have nothing else to do, you can always go to the museum and see the reconstructed Temple to Zeus that had been in Pergamon. Or you can steal a picture of it off of Wikipedia, which is what I did. Let's look at what Jesus says to the Christians in Pergamon, picking up in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to tell you it's a very difficult place to be a Christian. It's the center of Roman government. It's the center, if you will, of so much pagan devotion to the gods. And yet, if you're a Christian... You're living in that environment. So let's take a look at what he says. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. Jesus says that to every one of the seven churches. He knew what they were up to. He knew what they were doing. And by contrast, he knew what they were not doing. If he knew their works, I promise you he knows ours. He knows what Lindsley Avenue is up to. He knows what we've been up to. He knows what we're going to be doing. Whatever we do is under the observation, is seen by Jesus. That's why it's so terribly important to always keep your eyes on Jesus and to be doing works among our brothers and sisters and to be doing things in our community that bring honor and glory to God. It should be a chilling thing if we're not doing what we should be doing. 
Because Jesus knows. He knew then, he knows now. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. The description of sharp two-edged sword is the same description used of the word of God itself. So Jesus, as the word, has the word. He is the word, but he also speaks the word. So when Jesus is speaking, he has this sharp sword, the word that he speaks, that will cut through any and all obstacles. He knows their works as he knows everyone's works. And notice what he says. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne is obviously really not the devil himself. I mean, there was no one with a pitchfork and a pointed tail sitting in a chair somewhere in Pergamon. Not that the devil would look like that. But it's not referring, I don't believe, to the devil himself, but to some sort of presence that made it really difficult to be a follower of Jesus. Could potentially have been referring to a pagan standpoint. Such a center of pagan worship could have been talking about maybe Asclepios, because Asclepios was called the Savior. Perhaps that's what Jesus was thinking of. Could have been Zeus. That temple to Zeus with the fires burning all day, every day, would have been a very strong focal point, and Zeus was supposed to be the chief of the gods. I really suspect not, because by this first century, the gods in the Greek and Roman world were more of a formality, something you simply did uh, to be a good citizen. If you were in dire trouble, they became much more serious to you. But they really weren't taken all that seriously. People didn't think in the first century that there was a home up on top of Mount Olympus where the gods lived. So I suspect that's not really the presence that Jesus is calling here Satan's throne is coming from. It's not probably coming from the pagan presence that's in Pergamum. Pergamum was the center of the administration of the increasingly uh, growing, hostile Roman government. Now beginning to require all citizens to offer an annual sacrifice to Caesar and to Caesar's death. The change between the time of the book of Acts, written in 50 and 60 AD, to, uh, uh, in terms of the outlook and the reference to Rome, is dramatic when you get over to the book of Revelation, written about 40 years later. In the book of Acts, Rome and the Romans are almost always helpful to Christians. They are helpful to Paul. They are viewed with, with very good, a very good outlook. Rome is there to help and to keep things from deteriorating. But when the Roman government begins to see that Christians are not simply different, slightly different Jewish people, when Christianity is viewed as a novel, new religion, that sets the Romans off. And they start focusing on Christians as some sort of oddity. Rome was okay with religions as long as they were old. But how is it possible that a religion could have been only talked about last week? Now when you think about it, we do the same thing. We don't have any time for a religion that somebody came up with last Thursday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Really? You know, it, it took you to get this new religion to, uh, revealed to you Thursday afternoon. How nice for you, right? We wouldn't give any time for that, no matter what they were trying to tell us. We don't do that with some of our religious neighbors whose outlook for religion is only 100 or 200 years old because Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. But in the Roman time, in the first century, Christianity is viewed as relatively new, and the Romans, once they become aware of that, don't have any patience for it. 
And so what they started doing out in the provinces, especially into the second century, every year in order to get a business license, every year in order to be viewed as a uh, proper citizen uh, supporting the Roman government, you had to go and offer a pinch of incense and say that Caesar is Lord. You're affirming your political uh, affiliation and support of the Roman Empire, and you're also calling Caesar Lord. Well, from a Christian perspective, to say that Caesar is Lord is just something most Christians were incapable of doing and should not have done. Pergamum would have been a very, very difficult place to be a Christian. So let's look at what he says to you. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. The spirit of Rome is incarnated in one person, the emperor. All Christians lived under a very real threat of death at any time, especially in the 10, 20, 30 years after Jesus writes here to Pergamum. Pergamum was Satan's seat in the sense of the real power on the earth that's going to begin coming after God's people here on the earth. And that becomes Rome. The persecutions that break out in modern-day Turkey, the province of Asia, and then later on throughout the empire took many, many Christians to their deaths merely for either refusing to say Caesar is Lord or for daring to say Jesus is Lord. It was a place where men had to take the name of Lord and give it to Caesar instead of to Jesus. To a Christian, nothing could really be more satanic than to call anyone Lord other than Jesus himself. He then says, I know also that you did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Under all this pressure that they were going to be under, they were still living as Christians. And that's a testament to them 2,000 years later. They held on to Jesus and did not deny him. We don't know anything from scripture about Antipas. This is the only place his name shows up. Jesus calls him a faithful martyr. The word for martyr means witness. He died without denying Jesus. If you were willing to die for Jesus, to be standing up saying Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Son of God, and you died, you were a witness to the truth about Jesus, and that became equivalent to dying for Jesus. So all the martyrs in the second century and later, all the people throughout history who have died rather than denying Jesus were witness to Jesus. We saw that in the last 10, 20 years where people were being beheaded on a beach simply because they were willing to say Jesus was Lord, regardless of any disagreements we might have with some of the things they thought or did. They died because they said Jesus is Lord. You can still be a martyr today. Tradition says about Antipas that he was actually an elder, a leader in the church at Pergamum, killed in 92 AD, supposedly by being burned alive in a brass bull. Apparently, tradition says they took a brass shell in the shape of a bull, might have been for idolatry or something, heated it up in the fire, it was hollow, and they threw him inside, just like you might throw a hamburger on a grill. Gruesome. But he died because, whether that was true or not, he died because he refused to deny Jesus. Displaying your faith in Pergamum, being a witness, could mean death at any time. Daddy might leave in the morning, never come home. 
Mama might leave in the morning. Last you might see her. Today I worry that sometimes we find it very easy to display our faith when we're together, when we're inside a church building, when we're gathered with friends, brothers, and sisters who are of common faith. But then we downplay it when we're out by ourselves. That's my big fear. I don't know how each of us act when we're at work. I don't know how we act when we're eating out or shopping. We have it so much easier than the people in Pergamum. They did not deny their faith, but they were willing to die for it. Can we at least affirm our faith and live for it? If you don't remember, please, anything else about Pergamum, please remember that. We have the opportunity every day to live for Jesus, to speak Jesus' name without fear of being killed for it, which they were facing here in Pergamum. Would Jesus be happy with us? He was happy with the people of Pergamum. That's a, that's a hard question. I look at it and I'm like, I sure hope so. Hope isn't going to work, however, unless I focus my attention and making sure that I live tomorrow better than I lived yesterday in terms of putting Jesus first in my mind. Let's look a little more. He says, but I do have a few things against you. For most of the churches, five out of the seven, he has some things that are good, and then he takes them to task for a few things. You have not denied my name. You've got it tough, but always important to look for that change with the word but that shows up in a lot of places. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which things I hate. Now when you read that you might be looking and thinking what is that? What's Jesus talking about here? First of all you may remember Balaam back in the book of Numbers. He is paid by a king to go and curse the Israelites. He's riding to go do it on a donkey, and God grants the donkey the ability to see this angel about to kill Balaam. He keeps running into the law, and Balaam is beating on the donkey, and the donkey is given the opportunity. Well, as far as I can tell, the only time in history for a donkey to speak, you know, why are you beating me? He keeps beating on him, doesn't even realize. He's so enraged, doesn't even realize the donkey spoke to him. Later on in the book of Numbers, Balaam does have, we usually don't study that as much, he has the opportunity and uses it to lead people of Israel astray, just as Jesus says here, in terms of focusing on being one with the gods of the people of the land, which always included immorality. That's what Jesus is referring to. He's not referring to the cursing that Balaam was going to try to do, but Balaam came back and actually led some people astray. And then you have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It sounds like it's something similar to it. Well, Nicolaitans have also been mentioned in Jesus' message to the people at Ephesus. But it was a teaching that was something Jesus hated. There's an opportunity for further study at some point. I really want to avoid things Jesus hates. You know, maybe that's a sermon. What does God hate? At least, at the very least, I can focus on avoiding those things. You know, if you're, if you're married, typically if your spouse hates something, that's a good thing to not just focus on all the time. I hate it when you leave your, your you know, shoe on the dinner table, okay? 
That's, that's an easy thing. Don't put your dirty shoe on the dinner table or something like that. What does your spouse hate? Avoid it. How much more important is it to know what God hates, what Jesus hates, and avoid that? Jesus hates this teaching. Balaam here we're talking about to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit immorality. Nicolaitans, whatever this doctrine is, is very similar to it. Let's look at that real quick. Balaam and Nicolaitans. History says, I don't know how correct this is, that the Nicolaitans were followers of Nicholas, one of the seven who was chosen all the way back in Acts 6. History suggests that Nicholas, one of the seven chosen in Acts 6, to help wait tables and take care of the widows in Jerusalem, went off the rails and became an apostate and started trying to lead people astray. Nothing in Scripture says that, but history does. You, what we're talking about here are really enemies within the church. Enemies within the church. Now here's something that uh, I think ties it together and it was something I had not been aware of for a long time. Nicholas, Nicholas comes from, yes, just like the movie, two Greek words. Two Greek words. It comes from Nikon, which means conquer, and Laos, which means the people. Strangely enough, the word and the name Nicholas means to conquer the people. That could be a hint that Jesus is speaking in general terms here. Somebody within Pergamum, he's calling Nicholas, Nicolaitans, followers of Nicholas, are trying to conquer the people of the church of, of Pergamum by leading them astray. One who conquers the people. Might not have been Nicholas at all. Could have been a, a word to describe what they were doing, whoever this person was. In verse 15, Jesus refers to the doctrine of Balaam. Strangely enough, the name Balaam comes from two connected words in Hebrew because that's an originally Old Testament Hebrew name. It comes from Bela, which means to conquer, and La'am, means the people. So I think that's probably our answer. There were some internal enemies in Pergamum attempting to seduce and encourage followers of Jesus to compromise. Look at the problem of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that is given here. To offer, to eat food offered to idols and to commit sexual immorality. To be a business person. To be involved in the community in Pergamum meant you needed to not only offer that sacrifice to Caesar, that gave you a certificate. In the early second century, you had a little certificate. Think of it as a business license. If you needed to engage in commerce, you had to have this. And so people were suggesting, I have to live. I didn't mean it when I said Caesar is Lord. I know Jesus is Lord, but I had to get my license. It was necessary to prosper. It was necessary to do business. I have to live, don't I? Writing about 200 AD, a man named Tertullian heard that question. I have to live, don't I? His response was, must you live? If it comes to denying Jesus, do you really have to live? Compromise never works because you can't have just a little bit. And in terms of immorality, if you were engaged in commerce, most business deals were done in temples where pagan sacrifices were made. You were eating the food that had been offered to the idol. And then in almost all circumstances, temples had prostitutes. That was part of pagan religion. 
And so after you ate and drank, the immorality came in. Look at what Jesus has accused the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of Balaam as being. To seduce the people to eat things offered to idols, to compromise with their pagan friends, pagan business associates, and to engage in sexual immorality. In order to survive in today's world, you've got to make some compromises. Appears to be what the Nicolaitans were doing and what the Balaam doctrine really was. Two names, the same meaning. So we're talking here a little bit about this. I'll skip it over. It sought to persuade Christians that there was nothing wrong with conforming to the standards of society, standards of the world. We have that problem today. There is lots of pressure, lots of pressure on the church, lots of pressure on Christians to compromise, to change, to not make a stink about things God's very clear about. After all, we want to be good citizens in our community. We want to be successful. So come on. Those are those outdated ideas. You don't really mean it when you say Caesar is Lord. It doesn't really matter if you're engaging in eating these things offered to an idol. And it's just business when you have business meetings that turn to things you probably shouldn't do. I think it's very, very similar to forces at work today. He says to them, you've been doing this, look what he tells them, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus was not going to give them much time. He wasn't. Jesus would fight against them with the word of his mouth. We've already talked about that. That's the word of God. He's going to fight against them by what he's already told them, what they've already heard from God's word. The weapon against any false teaching or any compromise is simply to look and say, what does God say? What does God say? To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I'm going to go quickly through this. Uh, God gave the Israelites manna back in Exodus 16. Manna meant, what is this? Food fell from heaven. They didn't know what it was. And a pot of manna was put in the Ark of the Covenant, kept in the tabernacle and then the temple. When Solomon's temple was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed and the people of Judea were taken off into captivity, a legend grew. The legend grew that Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Covenant and hid it in the side of a mountain. After all, you can't let the Babylonians have the Ark of the Covenant. And it hidden away the manna in the side of this mountain, the side of this hill. The legend grew that when the Messiah came, when it was time for all things to be restored, the Messiah would take the manna and then distribute it to the people. The manna was hidden until Messiah came. I have no idea whether Jeremiah did something like that. That was the legend. Jesus, I believe here, is using that legend to say, I know you've heard that legend about the hidden manna. Well, guess what? I am the Messiah. And when I come, all blessings that you've ever wanted, I'm going to share with you. So I believe he's using the thoughts and the legends and the ideas that have always been in their heads for hundreds of years and saying, when Messiah comes, if you overcome, then you're going to have all these blessings that are just waiting for you. Hang in there and overcome 
He also says, I will give the one that overcomes a white stone, and on this stone a new name written which no one knows except the one who receives it. What's the deal with the white stone? Talked about the hidden manna. I think that one's relatively easy to imagine. That's the answer to it about the hidden manna. A white stone could stand for a lot of different things in the first century. Here's some possibilities. Colored stones were used to work out calculations. They didn't have a 10 key with a printing option on it. And so if you had 10s and 20s and hundreds and things like that, you had different colored stones. It could have meant that Christians who overcame, overcame the world would be counted among the faithful. I don't really think that was it. But probably made up by an accountant. I love accountants. Get me wrong, but an accounting person would come to that conclusion perhaps relatively fast. Number two, courts of law would use black and white stones for registering the verdict of a jury. Probably heard the term of being blackballed. They would put different colored balls in a sack and then they would open them up, and if it was more dark stones than white, the person was guilty. White stones indicated not guilty. So what it could be is if I'm going to give you a white stone, if you overcome, you are going to be counted innocent because I died for you. I died for you. Especially happy day was also called a white day. And so the father of the house, when he came home, there was a face in the entranceway. And many, many families, the father would take a stone, wouldn't let anybody know. And if he had a good day, he put a white stone in this vase. And if he'd had a hard day or a bad day, put in a black stone. What happened was, when the father of the house finally died, they broke the vase to see whether he'd had a happy life or a hard life. Jesus could very well be giving the white stone to say, you're never going to have a hard day again. If you overcome, if you hold on to my name, if you do not compromise, all you're ever going to have from now on will be happy days. I like that. Because I know we all have hard days. But if you hold on to Jesus, they're going to go away. They're going to go away. Christians could easily then find true happiness. It was also, here's the last one. It was also common to have a small amulet or charm worn on a necklace. And on the back of that charm was written kind of the, the god or goddess that the person gave special allegiance to. Some of your friends will have these little medals, maybe of St. Christopher or something like that, right? They'll wear it as if that's a charm. Or, well, we still call them charms. And so what Jesus could be saying is, I'm going to give you a white stone that has a name written on it that you can keep hidden on yourself, as it were. And it was considered more powerful if nobody knew which God you gave your special allegiance to. The name Jesus says he's going to give them is one nobody's going to know. The name you're going to have if you overcome is my name because you're going to be one of my people. The name would be Christian or Jesus. So whichever one of these is correct, if you overcome, you're going to be facing good things coming. You're either going to be declared innocent, you're going to have nothing but happy days, or you're going to be wearing something that has the name of Jesus on it and you're going to be his child to go home to live with them. Jesus tells them they are safe in life or death because they know the name of the only true God. Hear me well. You and I are safe for the exact same reason. If you're a member of God's family, you're safe. 
It doesn't matter what happens downtown. It doesn't matter what happens in the capital. It doesn't matter what happens in the world. It doesn't matter what health problems come, pandemics. It doesn't matter what happens in society. The only thing that matters is to follow Jesus and not deny his name. Remember what Tertullian said? Somebody said, well, I have to live, don't I? This is part of being a business person. To be a business person, you've got to lie. You've got to go to these places and these parties. You've got to do all this stuff. I have to make a living, don't I? Tertullian's answer is a great answer. Must you live if it requires denying Jesus? If you are not yet a member of God's family, you need to be a member of his body. You need to quit living for yourself because if you're not a Christian, if you're not a member of God's family, you are still living for yourself. Those are the only options, living for God or living for yourself. That means turning away from living the way you want to live because it's fun, because it's things that you like to do, and dying to your old ways, being buried in water behind us here, to be raised to walk as a new person, a Christian, wearing the name of Jesus. If you are a member of God's family, you're already a member of his family, but you've been following like Balaam and Nicholas, and you've been compromising with the world, I've got to get ahead. I've got to do what i got to do. If you're not living the way Jesus would want, if you haven't been putting his name out there, it needs to change there too. Whether you need to come and ask God for prayer, whether you need to say, I need to be a better Christian, whether you need to come and become a Christian, your opportunity is right now as we stand and say.